Hi there, this is Wafa Al-Abedat. You are listening to the Women Power Podcast, a subsidiary platform to the Women Power Summit, the largest event in MENA, with the aim of empowering women and helping them achieve their absolute highest potential. Each week on the Women Power Podcast, you will hear honest, vulnerable, authentic, real conversations from inspiring women. These women will share their experiences and stories into what it takes to build a successful business and career. The podcast will share insight and inspiration and hopefully inspire action and lead change. Anum Bashir is the founder of the fashion and art platform Desert Mannequin. She's also the co-creative director for Enduo. Anum is a consultant, a designer, a blogger and a contributor to publications and online magazines. She is also in charge of partnerships for Sanam Kapoor and Sara Shakil, which have a combined following of over 31 million followers on Instagram alone. Welcome, Anam. What do you think makes Desert Mannequin and you so different than other influencers who are, you know, collaborating and working with brands? I think, to be quite frank, ever since I, like, ushered in my 30s, there is this kind of sense of comfort. And you often hear women talk about it, right? Like, the older you get, you just stop caring about kind of this outside sense of um, affirmation or acknowledgement or um, whatever it is. And it, you just, you really start to focus on yourself and what makes you happy. And I think the beauty of getting older and hopefully becoming wiser is that you um, are a lot more self-aware. And as a, as a, as a person myself in this space, I have realized and come to learn over the years that I really genuinely was gravitating towards women who had not only a really strong voice, but a sense of purpose and brought a certain level of intellect and authenticity and ingenuity to their, to their platforms. And, you know, I actually want to credit a lot of people in this space that I share, like the quote unquote influencer space. I think there's a lot of women now that are really chartering purpose. You know, they, I think purpose has become really, really important for women in the last few years. And, um, you know, I think it was Meghan Markle that once said, or it might, and I think Priyanka Chopra at some point has also mirrored that, that women don't need to find their voice. They've always had it. It's just a matter of like now, more recently, we are not afraid to use it. And I think for me as, um, you know, someone who regards herself as, you know, fairly highly educated. I come from a long lineage of very strong, independent women. I mean, my grandmother went to medical school, you know, so and in, in a place like Pakistan in the 50s, early 50s, for a woman to go to a, a highly revered medical school is, is really something very noteworthy. You know, almost every single woman um, in my family has has acquired higher education, has been working for decades. My mother is an extremely successful doctor. My sister is a really successful lawyer. Um, and so for us, I think this sense of not just being grounded and deeply rooted, but having purpose and using our voice for good and, and this whole notion of, you know, you mentioned being likable, I think it's just a simple byproduct of just being your truest self. Um, I actually find people to be very likable, even in their, um, you know, in their defensiveness or in their certain people have certain candor or um, possess certain attributes that, you know, you and I might, might not hold in high regard. But I think it's extremely commendable to to be your truest self, whether some people will find it likable, some people won't. So I think for me, especially now that I'm about to become a mother, I'm so hyper aware and cognizant of the fact that I am now going to be responsible for raising this human being and how she turns out and how she performs in the world and how she's regarded by her peers, her family, her friends is going to be a direct reflection of myself. So in essence, I have to be on my best behavior going forward. I just want to be um, the best version of myself for my husband, for my daughter, for my family, for my colleagues, for my friends. And I think no one's ever lost in life by being honest, 
loyal, um, having integrity. I don't want to promote brands that I can't get behind, for example. Um, and I don't want my social media presence to come across as very transactional. That's very important to me. Um, I want to partner with brands. And I've said this even on like a recent Clubhouse chat. I want to partner with brands where when my audience consumes that content, their first reaction is, oh my God, yeah, that totally makes sense. We can totally see why she did this. You know, it's so in keeping with this identity and DNA that I've been fostering for the last six years, five, six years. How do your family feel about Desert Mannequin? You know, you said that they come, you know, they're highly educated. They're, they've come from, you know, I, want, I don't want to say like traditional backgrounds, but like... No, but they do. <laughs> family is very straight-laced and very, very conservative. I come from a... From an, it's actually interesting. You know, I need, to, I need to paint this picture more accurately for you. So my mother's family um, is actually very, very conservative and, you know, quite religious and um, very straight-laced, middle-of-the-road, South Asian successful family. Whereas my dad's family, um, while being, you know, just as successful, um, they're a lot more kind of liberal and have, you know, a, a much more, I don't want to say the word tolerant, because I'm not, I'm not trying to insinuate that my mother's family isn't. But I think it's just this kind of juxtaposition of orthodox versus unorthodox, right? And so my sister and I grew up in a household where both parents oftentimes had very conflicting views about certain things like religion, like, um, you know, uh, just certain lifestyle choices, for example. Um, but with that being said, initially when I, you know, set out to launch a quote unquote blog and, you know, around the time of Desert Mannequin's inception, I did not get a lot of support from my family. I mean, to this day, I don't don't get a lot of support. I'm always like freaking out if a really religious auntie happens to find her way on Instagram. I'm like, oh no, like this content is definitely getting screenshotted and sent back to my mom for a whole conversation surrounding shame and religion and you know, whatever. But it's like, you know, I've also realized that um, South Asian kids or Muslim kids forever live in the shadow of their parents like you're just constantly fearful of judgment and you know having to please them and it took you know my husband and just also just waking up one day and being like yo you're in your 30s like you're 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 doing fine you're not crossing any lines or boundaries be proud of what you've accomplished um, I, I do try to do everything within the confines of cultural sensitivity as much as I can. Um, and of course, there will always be disagreements. But I think if I can be really, really honest with you, it's kind of gotten to the point with my with my parents, especially or my family. It's kind of like a don't ask, don't tell. Like they know what I do. And they're very proud of me for a number of things. Like my mom will read stories that I've written for different publications or she'll, she will have heard me on a podcast or, you know, I've spoken at conferences and on panels and she'll, she'll try to like embrace it. And she will say like, oh, that was really good. That was really informative. Wow. You know, I, I, I didn't realize that you're so um, entangled or involved with so many different facets of the industry. Because like I've always said, like for me, my presence as Desert Mannequin is not just put on a cute outfit, take a picture and post it, right? Like it's it's got to be more than that. You've got to bring yourself into the fold of learning to have conversations, not just pertaining to the industry. Like, for example, sustainability is such a big thing or, you know, the inner workings of how the fashion industry is evolving through COVID. And I think Platforms like BOF are such strong educational tools, and I really subscribe to that. I really enjoy the intellectual, business-savvy, academic, research aspect of the industry. Um, do I love fashion? Yes, I've loved it since I was a little girl, and I love that whole art of dressing up and what that symbolizes. Um, but not to steer too far off from the question, yes, my family is very, very conservative. My in-laws are very conservative. 
Um, but I think I've just managed to just drown out that noise and continue um, to charter a way forward in a manner that I'm hoping will uphold my my background and my tradition. Like I'm very proud to be South Asian. I'm very proud to be Muslim. Um, am I super conservative? No. Um, but I'm hoping that I can that I think I actually have balanced it quite well, but I'm hoping that in the future I can continue to balance it even better as a mom. Um, and I, I will obviously want my daughter to be very, very exposed to her background and her culture and her lineage. Um, but I've, I've learned to not care about opinions so much. Like I was saying earlier, I just, I'm very excited about being in this space. I always have been. And so... I just kind of put my head down and just just keep doing me. There are so many aha moments in what you've just said, Anna, because, you know, we think that, you know, if you come from a conservative background and you know, a lot of our listeners are from this part of the world and, mm-hmm. you know, the struggle is, OK, maybe if I get married, I'll be free and I can do what I want. Mm-hmm. So I can leave my parents mm-hmm. house and then, you know, you get married. But then, you know, your your husband is also like, you know, what will people think? And then what will society think? And your parents are still, you know, they're following you on all the channels. So it's just like there's no escape of you know, this fear of what they what they think. And, and so many people have sacrificed their authentic self and their dreams because what will people think? What will the neighbors think? What will, you know, our, like you said, our aunts and our uncles think? And it's, you know, it's devastating to get so much support from community. But then, you know, one comment from our parents could just really just ruin our day. And it's like, is it worth it to post this stuff and upset them? Like, maybe I just should be more careful. So it's, I just feel like it's uh, it's an ongoing battle. No, I agree. And I think it is important to drown out certain noise. Obviously, you can't drown everything out. I know a lot of girls that have found themselves in really tricky positions, whether they're um, with hejba or they, you know, like I, I really salute Asia, for example. And I really take my hats off to her for someone who lives a very public life and has a very... Um, robust and, you know, a a very sizable platform to be wearing the hijab for so many years and having established her whole kind of digital identity around being this modest mutajba girl of, of, you know, she, she, she comes from a hybrid background to one day just being like, this just doesn't work for me. You know, like this, I can no longer continue down this path. It just, it doesn't feel authentic. It's not me. And I really, really salute her for that because there, there will come several crossroads in your life where, you know, you either just need to pivot, you need to reset. I mean, to be honest, there's been so many moments in, in my career where I've, I feel like I've been burnt out or I just no longer was deriving the type of pleasure or return or joy from being in this creative space in the fashion space the fashion space is not an easy space to be in and moreover when you're an influencer you know we've had this these conversations ad nauseum that there's so many influencers and there's so many incumbents in the space and everyone's trying to like fight for your for your attention and for your five minutes of fame and you just it gets very exhausting and you know at times as a 30-something, it just really takes me back to like certain um, episodes in Sex and the City or, you know, like these monologues that Carrie has about being replaced by a 20-something girl. And that is a very real fear you have when you get older. The minute you sit down to take a breather, just know that there's a 25-year-old girl who's younger, fitter, hotter, just looking to take your place. And I mean, that's fine. Um, you can't just, you can't just like sit on this like proverbial throne for forever. But I like now more so than ever. Um, I mean, more so on the global stage rather than the Middle Eastern stage, you're seeing pregnant women walk on the runway, you know, you're seeing older women, you're seeing women of color, you're seeing people with, you know, I mean, I find them to be these beautiful unique qualities like vitiligo or um 
just these, you know, these, these different characteristics that make them different. I don't even want to call them, you know, illnesses or ailments or diseases or whatever, or abnormalities, because they're not. They're just these beautiful, unique characteristics that just make us, you know, different and stand out. Um, but with that being said, like, it does sometimes sadden me because I would like to see more diversity and more inclusivity within the Middle Eastern media space, which I feel like has been a bit of a um, an oversight amongst publications and brands and PRs for, for quite a few years. You see it be quite homogenous and insular. So that is kind of one of my biggest critiques of of the of the of the industry here in, in the Middle East. Where do you foresee taking Desert Madican? What is your vision for it? Because I feel like, you know, obviously you've created the space because you have a lot to share and you have a different experience with this industry than your typical influencer. I'm really generalizing here, but you know, especially in this part of the world, you know, we're we're used to seeing, like you said, more, you know, transactional based influencers that are really popular. And that's, you know, you know, hats off to them. They're doing their thing. They're business women and that's fine. But but you're kind of crafting your own path and you are, you know, you've you've just said it yourself, like you 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 love the business side of things and the deeper side of things and like the trends and the kind of sustainability aspect of it so you're you're you know definitely deep diving into it it's almost like the academia of of, it's like merging you know how you were brought up with your parents with this with what you love like it's the the marry of the two um but where do you foresee taking desert mannequin do you have some plan for it that we haven't seen yet or haven't heard about i juggle two completely different sentiments and mentalities when it comes to my business there's days where i wake up and i have such a strong and um you know i just have a really really robust idea and sense of where i want to take my business what i want my business to be how i want it to evolve with myself and, you know, my, my personal life and the various different roles I'm taking on. And then there's other days where I'm like, what the hell am I doing? You know, like I, I think this will work, but I'm not sure. And then I don't get the kind of like affirmation from my ecosystem that I'm looking for, like the kind of like green light that you sometimes just kind of seek in your, in your horizon. And so it's, it's kind of this tricky juggling of, wanting to be really meticulous in my strategy and my planning and realizing that I want my business to evolve. I want my brand to evolve. And I think it's done a really good job at growing legs. So I think for me, about three years ago, no, even more, I would say like four years ago, even before I moved to Dubai, I I had this like light bulb moment where I was like, okay, So I've spent five and a half years in the art world, you know, working in the museums, and it's been incredible. It's been so formative. It's really helped me nurture a network for myself, foster this network of, you know, um, influential individuals that I can leverage one day to, um, you know, take on projects or or however I choose to use um, those contacts. And then, you know, I'd launched Desert Mannequin as like one of the first blogs or one of the first um, individuals as chronicling personal style in Qatar. And it was really exciting because brands were taking note, notice of it. And I was kind of marrying the contemporary art and fashion spaces. And I, I really wanted my platform to be kind of like the one-stop shop of kind of like this platform you would go to um, to discover new and interesting emerging brands. Like that was like such an impetus for me at the time. Like I really want to be the girl that you go to when you want to know what the next cool brand is, what the next interesting designer is, who to look out for. And for about a year or two, it was, it worked beautifully. It worked seamlessly. Like people were getting, my, my audience was getting exposed to, this incredible contemporary art that I had the pleasure of being exposed to, you know, via my role at Qatar Museums and then kind of marrying that with interesting fashion, fashion that was that would start a conversation. 
And then you fast forward a year or two and I come to Dubai and I'm like, okay, so now I'm in Dubai. This is a bigger market. There's a lot more competition. There's, you know, a lot of girls doing a lot of things. How can I continue to diversify? And I'm just generally just like an antsy person to begin with. I don't like being stagnant for too long, which is interesting because I'm also someone that doesn't cope well with change. So I am confused, man. That's all you can say. Like, I, I don't cope well with change. And I'm pregnant and I'm, I don't know when my husband's coming back. Exactly. Exactly. It's like, you know, I am such a creature of contradiction sometimes because it's like, okay, so you don't like change. You like things as they are, but you don't want to stand still. And I'm like, exactly. I mean, if you get it, you get it. If you don't, well, I mean, whatever. I hope you find it endearing. That, that's not necessarily a bad thing because I feel like you seem to me like a very rooted person. So I feel like your feet are on the ground and you are like, I think you like structure and okay. understanding where you're going and planning and I just feel like you're really organized and articulate. But then I think definitely there's a side of you that's like creative chaos, like some sort of like collaboration and the unknown and like like what's new. And I, and I feel like the two is actually what makes a lot of incredible entrepreneurs like it's the, the Mary of the two. So I actually think that's what makes you really special. I mean, you couldn't have summed it up better. I think my own family couldn't have summed it up better. Like, I love structure and I'm extremely meticulous and I, I have OCD. Like, my house is always pristine. I love my closets really organized. My inbox is always completely tended to. I try to make sure that, you know, I don't leave emails unanswered. Bills are always paid on time. But then there's a, a really anxious, uh, chaotic kind of, a soul in me that just is like, okay, but what can I do next? How can I grow next? How can I capitalize on this next opportunity? And I think the two together, I, I, it's, I guess it's for me, it's my, it's my yin and yang, right? Like those are my, my two, the two aspects of my personality, which is really interesting because I am a Gemini. So Geminis are known to have these two very contradicting sides to them. Um, but anyway, like like I was saying, like when I came to Dubai, I was like, okay, well, I just, I can't rest on my laurels and I can't just continue to take a nice picture and throw it up on Instagram. Like there, there's got to be more. And I really always long desired to be in the fashion design space. And I got to do like a few influencer collabs with Enduo and it just, it, you know, we loved working with each other. It, it's a brand that I really believe in. There was such great synergy. It almost felt like I was being invited into a family, right? And so I became co-creative director of a brand based in Tbilisi. And I started writing for publications because, you know, editors would reach out to me and say, you know, we've gotten kind of like, we've read excerpts of your writing and we think you have a really strong voice, a really strong kind of point of view. So, you know, I'd, I'd contributed to several different publications, including like writing for Man Repeller for like months and months on end. Um, so it was it was very, very um, rewarding to like usher in this new chapter in a new city. So like I just moved to Dubai. I was super excited about living here. I think it's a, like a it's a magical city. It's totally like an entrepreneurial dream come true. Um, and then to be able to like, start designing dedicated collections like season after season and write for an you know for a publication like Man Repeller or contribute to like Savoir Flair or you know collaborate with other publications like Vogue Arabia or to be asked to um, share my insights with BOF that's that's really such a pat on the back and then you know again like Fast forward two years, I'm like, okay, this is going great. This is wonderful. What's next? I kind of always ask myself this question every couple of years. What's next? I wanted to launch the first influencer-founded podcast in the region, and I did that with DMFM, you know? Um, I'm, I'm very kind of annoyed with myself for not having um, posted as regularly as, as I would have liked to. I think COVID really just took a turn, and I kind of went into like this emotional shell and I was trying for a baby as well. And, 
you know, there was just a lot happening in my personal life that wasn't allowing me to dedicate 100% of myself to my work. But we launched DMFM very successfully and it was very well received. And I'm hoping to like pick that up post baby when I'm in Riyadh. You know, I think it's Riyadh is going to be such an interesting place for me to pick up that conversation where I left off. This episode is brought to you by Bath & Body Works. Bath & Body Works is your go-to place for gifts and goodies that surprise and delight. From fresh fragrances to soothing skincare, they make finding your perfect something a happy memory-making experience. Now more than ever, we need every little thing to make us feel good about ourselves. And for me, it's putting on a Bath & Body Works lotion from their Japanese Cherry Blossom Collection, which is my personal favorite, after a nice hot shower. It's a beautiful fragrance sensation. I reward myself with it every day when winding down, especially after a long day of working from home and taking care of my toddler. It's also such a wonderful feeling when I get complimented by my husband, which adds to the whole memory-making experience. So I'm just really happy for these affordable luxuries that are all about self-care. You can shop their latest collection of lotions, soaps, and candles from their website or at their fun and welcoming stores across the region. Follow them on Instagram at Bath & Body Works Arabia. So I have a bunch of questions. Um, I just yeah. want to go back to, you know, you got those opportunities with NDO. Am I saying it right? NDO. NDO. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, were these paid opportunities, were you monetizing or did you, you know, were you just experimenting um, and pathfinding and even, because to me, it's very interesting how you, like, I'm obsessed with monetization and I feel like our listeners are always trying to figure out how do I do what I do? and do it for a living like you know and how do I get paid what I'm worth right okay. but obviously before that happens we are you know building our portfolios and you know putting in the work and you know failing a lot so in this process with Desert Mannequin when you were being asked to write and when you were being you know you're invited to collaborate with these brands are these opportunities you know where you were getting paid or did you feel like you know I was just doing it because I was enjoying it a little bit of both. Um, I think over the years, as you become more of like a seasoned veteran in, in the industry, of course, you're able to demand a fee more so because now you have a stronger leg to stand on and a more robust kind of, so to speak, like a resume, so to speak. Um, but in the in like the early years of Desert Mannequin, I, I would say it was 50-50, maybe even 40-60. 40% was paid, 60% wasn't because you're trying to establish yourself and just like get your name out there. Um, obviously, fast forward five, six years from, you know, since then, I am monetizing on, I would say, 80 to 90% of the things that I take on. I also want to be really candid with your listeners that a lot of times many things might come across as a paid collaboration and they're in fact not. You know, influencers have a really smart and astute way to make everything feel like it's a campaign or that it was paid. A lot of brands just won't pay you. You know, that's just the way that their maison is structured, the way that the, the relationship with the influencer or the celebrity is structured. They won't pay. I mean, yes, they will obviously send you some very lavish gifts and, um, you know, you I think even just building that relationship with a brand is such an honor, you know, um, to be able to work with certain houses is such an honor. Um, but with that being said, yes, with Enduo, I am now like considered to be an employee of the, of the brand. So I, I'm a salaried employee of Enduo. You know, I'm, I've been working there for many, many years and we, um, as a co-creative director, we're designing collections together with my, you know, friend and co-founder, um, Natuka, and, you know, as far as writing for publications is concerned, yeah, you know, there is a fee for that. Like you charge a certain amount of money per word or you, you know, the, the publication will say we have a budget for this. And that's something you can discuss and, and negotiate. It's really incredible. You know, if, to me, it always feels like it's, it's kind of the, like the reverse uh, trajectory of, of like, a, like an influencer or someone who has influence. You know, they'd want to get out of like reporting to some like you know they they usually have terrible jobs they want to get out of and they want freedom and they don't want to be able to report to anybody but here you found or you know you struck a balance between again having that structure that kind yeah. of commitment and that scope of work plus um you know 
there's a lot more freedom for you to do what you want. Um, yeah, and I feel like, you know, you could probably, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, you could probably really monetize much more from Desert Mannequin and do like a lot more uh, tra- like a tr- um, kind of paid uh, brand endorsements. But you're choosing to say, I'm dedicated, I enjoy this. I enjoy this part of my work. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, for me, it's also, I feel very fortunate and very blessed that money is not my greatest motivator. Let's just put it that way, right? So if I'm approached with an amazing project, which I feel like positions me really well, you know, helps me garner more clout, um, I'm in the right kind of circle and I'm being positioned with the right kind of people. Will I take on a project that doesn't pay? Absolutely, I will. You know, I'm not going to sit here and make it seem like I am cashing in on everything that's coming my way because that's that's not the truth and at the end of the day we're also living in a you know covid post-covid era where some brands don't necessarily have the same budgets or they would like to kind of evolve in the way that they're engaging with influencers or working with influencers my strategy has always been i think longevity when it comes to partnerships are the most believable and they're the most authentic. I would much rather work with four brands a year or five brands a year throughout the year and brands that I'm, you know, already very loyal to, brands that I've maybe even bought into. It just makes so much more sense to partner with someone that you already have chemistry with. It's like going on a date, right? Like why would you have a second date if the first date didn't go well. And I kind of I kind of see it as that. You're building a relationship. Um, and yes, while that relationship might oftentimes be transactional, you still have you still owe the service to your to your audience and to your following to be sincere. There, there's got to be sincerity in everything that you do. So I personally for me, it just it's never worked partnering with 18 brands a year across all different kinds of genres. Um, You just, I don't know, it just, I personally have felt a sense of like just being lost and confused in that space. So I would rather be very edited, very curated. Maybe that's like my museum side coming out, you know, like just being picky and I think that's okay. Um, And also like, I'm not a mega influencer. Like I'm, I'm very you know, very candid about that. Like I don't have 4 million followers. So it's not like a hundred thousand brands are lining up at my door trying to figure out how much I charge per post. It's, there's a completely different ethos to Desert Mannequin. And it's about being really true to a very strong narrative. You know, skincare for me has been such a big conversation on Desert Mannequin. My followers are always asking about beauty-related questions, skincare-related questions. It's something I'm so passionate about. It's something that I will never waver from in terms of brands cannot pay me thousands of dollars to promote a product that I don't think is either safe or is not clean or has, you know, I'm just, I cannot be bought in that way. That's just, I don't know, that's just, that's how I feel. I want to move on to your work as a consultant, but also mm-hmm. um, on your bio, you have so partnerships for S- Sonam Kapoor and partnerships for Sara Shakil. Yeah. So I want to know what is that about? Like, can you tell us more about why that's important to you? What do you do for them? Because it's it's right there under, you know, kind of your, you know, the kind of services that you offer or the work that you mm-hmm. do. So it's clearly a priority and it's important to you. Right. So for me, again, like, you know, like I said, every couple of years, I have this itch that I need to scratch, right? Like, it's like, okay, I've completely gotten my feet into the ground when it comes to the influencer hat. Like, I get it. I know it inside and out. You know, my partnerships are something that roll off really easily for me. I have those relationships that I very much cherish So we've got that. We've checked that box, you know, when it comes to wearing the creative director hat and designing clothes and putting out collections. 
I've got that. Like I know how we've got a system. We've got this amazing synergy. It's just this really well-oiled machine that functions extremely well. So we've checked that. You know, I wanted to launch a podcast. I wanted to be able to use my voice even further in this industry. And I wanted to be able to completely kind of immerse myself in this world of conversation. So I felt really proud for launching DMFM. And like I said, like it's something that I'm really going to be focusing on in the next chapter of my life as a mother, as someone who's chartering a new city, you know, like Riyadh, that I actually don't know a lot about. So again, conversation there just seems, it seems so organic and necessary for me to, to continue the podcasting, you know, continuing down the podcasting realm. So I checked that box. I wanted to write for publications. I checked that box. And then it like dawned on me about a year and a half, uh, two years ago, um, I was kind of working on a very friendly level or friendly basis with Fashion Trust Arabia. And I'm, you know, very fond of Tanya Faris. And I'm, you know, obviously I commend her a lot for what she's created via the FTA platform. And, you know, we would brainstorm and, and I went to Beirut and we were talking about, you know, who would be on like this inaugural jury panel. And, you know, these are just like really insightful industry conversations that take place behind the scenes of, you you kind of tether yourself to these different initiatives. And like I said, I want to reiterate, not everything is always paid or, you know, transactional. These are just like, it's like a friend helping a friend out or getting involved in a in an incubator or a nonprofit or a startup that you really believe in. And, you know, I had just kind of pitched this idea to her. I'm like, you know, Sonam is someone who has been championing Middle Eastern designers for, for years. She's, a, you know, a megastar. She's such a celebrated and decorated um, Bollywood actress. She's an international global brand ambassador for mega brands like IWC and Chopard. And um, she's a regular fixture at like the Cannes Film Festival. So I'm like, you know, she would make such an amazing, um, invaluable addition to this to this jury. And Tanya loved the idea, and you know, Sonam brought a certain gravitas and diversity. We, you know, we didn't want the panel to just be all Western designers or only designers or you know only Arabs or only Europeans. So she really brought a very different flair. And as someone who has been such a, you know, celebrated purveyor of fashion, it just was such a, it was just such an organic fit to invite her to be part of this jury. And that's how I got to know her. So she, um, you know, she was in Doha and I had kind of arranged for her to be on this jury panel. And, you know, she was an amazing company with the likes of Diane von Furstenberg and, you know, Victoria Beckham and Zuhair Murad and... I mean, the list just goes on and on. Carla Bruni, um, Naomi Campbell. And, you know, I just, I felt so proud in that moment, not just because I was able to facilitate someone who I really admire being on the panel, but it made me really proud as a South Asian woman, you know, to see such a respected, celebrated South Asian personality be kind of, you know, neck to neck with all these other kind of industry juggernauts. And Sonam and I got to know each other and, you know, she she has this beautiful energy and she's really like just a lovely human being. And I think we fostered a friendship first and then it just kind of very naturally culminated into like this, this work relationship. I wasn't even pursuing that that angle of my career just yet. You know, it just it's honestly like people ask me this question so many times, like, and so it's such a frequently asked question, even on my Instagram, whenever I do Q and A's, it's like, how did you get to meet Sonam? Oh my God, I'm a huge fan of hers. It, it really just was this very serendipitous, charmed interaction that culminated into this, you know, mutual friendship, understanding, like we have respect for each other. We would like, converse with each other all the time and she was like you know I would love for someone to be my eyes and ears in the region that's literally just how the conversation came about and then we started working on 
projects together pre-lockdown. And unfortunately, you know, with 2020 being a myth to most of us, like 2020, truly, I just describe it as a myth. Like it just came and left and just left this um, path of destruction in its wake. But up until lockdown, you know, we were kind of meeting every few months and working on appearances and partnerships. And we went to, you know, Couture Week together in Paris. And, you know, we were really building this amazing momentum. And it gave me a lot of confidence. You know, there had, there was a moment where once again, you start to question your presence and your role and your legitimacy in the industry. And then you realize it takes a really bomb project or a great interaction to like get you back on track, right? You're like, yes, I got this. Okay, so I'm back. Like, I feel great. Um, and it gave me a lot of confidence to manage people. I'm like, okay, so I, I'm an influencer with a pretty robust network. I'm now going to leverage this into trying to, you know, garner and procure partnerships for people far more influential than me and who have a much bigger following than me. So that's how Sonam came to be. I've worked with brands like David Webb, which has been amazing. Like they're this heritage brand based out of New York City with incredible jewelry. It's, you know, it's a hundred year old brand. Um, and then slowly but surely, you know, Sarah and I became friendly with each other and got to know each other. And again, we share a very similar background. Like, you know, she's Pakistani, my mother's Pakistani. There's a very similar lens through which we observe the industry and the world. And um, again, like I always, always say, work will never feel like work if you can find a way to turn your clients and your relationships into deep and meaningful friendship. 100%. I think it's the same with clients. And I feel like maybe that's also how you approach your consultancy is probably supernatural it feels right to collaborate and, right. and work with them and I feel like again you look at things on a much deeper level um, you care about strategy and creative and impact so right. you are now becoming a team member you're adding value so it's how do we where do we integrate this valuable right. conversation right. And, and then and I always tell all of my clients you're in the driver's seat the wish list is yours to make. The decisions are yours to make. I am merely but a facilitator. I am in this space as a confidant, as someone you can trust, as someone to give you a second and third opinion. You know, I, I would like to think that my opinion seven years on now, having chartered um, the space, is not only respected but valued. And at the end of the day, my clients are my friends. So their best interest is always at the forefront of everything that that kind of drives me in terms of how I work. And it's the same with Sara. It's the same with Sonam. It's the same with Enduo. It's the same with any brand that I've even worked on on a project basis or have worked with for a couple of years like David Webb. Like they're like my family. I've always said like, you know, it's, it's not about the transaction. It's not about the paycheck. Of course, we all want to be successful. And this is a business at the end of the day. And it needs to make financial sense, fiscal sense. We would like to thank our wonderful gift partners, Bath & Body Works, for championing the Woman Power podcast. After a long and tiring day of working from home, taking care of my toddler, and making sure the house is in order, I love to occasionally have a friend over, especially in these isolated times. Our evening is nothing short of delightful after lighting the white barn candles from Bath & Body Works, which completely transforms the whole vibe of my home and is such a mood lifter. It adds so much coziness and warmth, making the dinner all around the more joyous and special. Create your own special moments and give them a shout out on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter at Bath & Body Works Arabia. I have a few questions about this because I think this is such a fascinating transition. In my experience managing talent and I'm, you know, or, or managing opportunities for different uh, people, there's a lot of administrative work in the back end answering questions and yeah. replying to brands. And there's, especially if you're doing, I mean, in my case, you know, I, I was managing a volume of people at some stage. So it was so overwhelming because I didn't feel I was doing a lot of the creative 
and collaboration. I was doing a lot of the filtering and I was like protecting right. these amazing people to do what they needed to do. Um, does the dark side of managing these artists, is that something you enjoy that gives you joy? So it's funny Like I was actually going to say, I don't find it to be the dark side. I just find it to be the tedious side. It is really tedious. I, I know like, for example, you can go back and forth with a brand on like the negotiating or, you know, you know what it's like. You've been in those shoes, right? Like you can literally have an email chain of like 120 emails in that thread where it's back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And guess what? For some reason, the project doesn't even end up going through, right? So, you know, it is very tedious. It's part of the job. Um, like I said, nothing, nothing phenomenal comes easy. But with that being said, like to be very fair as well, like I know you've been in this role far longer than I have. I've only been managing and consulting or managing people really for like two years, right? Consulting, I've been doing a lot longer. Like I host brands. I, I put together intimate trunk shows around different cities because I've been able to put together, you know, a pretty substantial client database over the years. But it Yes. So to answer your question, it's definitely very tedious. It's definitely not the fun part of the job, but I know it's something that just needs to be done. And you know what? Lucky for me, I am a people person, so I don't resent the Zoom meetings and the, and the conversations as much because, like I said, fostering relationships is just, I'm so grateful. Um, I don't know who I got that gene from, but I love conversating and I love getting to know people. And I realize that the more you kind of give yourself to a brand or a client or the person at the other end of that conversation, the more likely you are to be successful somewhere down the road. So for example, you and I might not see eye to eye on a project next week and that's fine. But I, I also know that there is so much more to gain by nurturing that relationship because you never know. A year from now, it could yield you a project that was 10 times as big in scope, right? And simply because you were likable or respectful or funny or just, you know, just a, just a pleasure to be around, I think when you're able to leave a room or a conversation on a high note, you know, leaving a good taste in someone's mouth, you're far more likely to go the distance with them. And I think that's, that's not only the, the positive that my clients see in me, it's also something that, that they very much embody themselves. You know, I couldn't work with a mean person. I couldn't work with a nasty person. It just wouldn't work. Like I would probably end up in tears every day because I would get so emotional about being tethered to this person. So for me, it's like, Patience and perseverance and just being really strategic, methodology, super important, um, the art of being able to be an effective communicator. Um, and, you know, like I said, I am not going to sit here and tell you that I've hit a home run with every pitch because that's not true. No one hits a home run with every pitch. There's a lot of disappointment along the way where you think you had something in the bag practically and for whatever reason whether it was budget or timing or you know a lack of meeting of the minds that project just did not did not go through it's a very challenging experience there are so many uptakes and and there's so many highs to it um like i said yeah. like it's it's like making a, like a movie like it's all these different things coming together um totally. but yeah but the the process to get there in my experience i and that's personal to me was like oh my God, like, I'm just sitting here like, you know, and then if you don't get back to them, it's like, we've emailed you six times already or two times. And you're like, I'm just trying to get, you know, I'm trying to get through yeah. to everyone. I'm trying to get my bearings and you're, and you're right. You know, like a lot of times a project will go through and the client is just really trying to milk you for all you've got. And you realize you, you know, I think something for me that's really hard to do, um, but I'm getting better at it is assuming the role of a bad cop, right? Because that's why your client is hiring you. They don't want to have those tricky conversations. They don't want to be dealing with, they don't want to be client facing. They want to come, they want to do the job. They want to get, um, you know, compensated for their time or their artistry or 
for their content and they want to just respectfully move on to the next project. And so a lot of times people like in, in our position as consultants or managers or representation, um, we've got to wear th- that the bad cop hat, right? And it's not easy to wear. But again, and I'm, I'm at the stage now where it's like, I will never be the bad cop. I'm the good cop. And all your roles are to protect me. So I work with an incredible team, but I'm just, I used to be the bad cop from like year one to 10. And now uh-huh. I'm just like, no more bad cop for me. You're all protecting me. So you deliver the bad news. Right. I'm not. I'm queen B. <laughs> yeah. Like, because I feel like, you know, it's a lot of it is just managing energy. So if I'm having these tougher conversations, you know, I feel like that's what great managers are also for. They're there to protect your energy. So if I'm meant to be doing strategy and, you know, um, acquiring customers, I will get drained if I need to have a very tough conversation with somebody that maybe I shouldn't be having to begin with. Right. So, um, you know, a lot of what I've had to do is go back to my team and be like, you know, that's, this is your role, you know, my HR manager or my acting CEO, just to be like, you know, you guys are meant to handle this because I have to like, you know, I have a financial KPI to get to at the end of the year. So, uh, so my follow-up question to that um, is you've been doing this for two years. Obviously these women trust you, you are um, doing incredible work. Is it in your plans to scale and to get, a team to help you or someone to help you in this, especially the tedious part of things. So you can focus on the parts that maybe um, you enjoy more or, you know, is that, is that in the plans or is this just like, I'm taking on only these two people because, uh, or these two artists, because I connect with them and I bond with them and I'm not looking to build a whole business model around this. So I am looking to scale to answer your question. Long story short, luckily for me, the various different hats that I wear already have an established ecosystem of their own. So for example, at Enduo, we've got a brand director, we've got an atelier, we've got a production manager, you know, um, Natuka and I as co-creative director, you know, she's obviously the founder of the brand. So while it is still a very intimately run family business, we still do have a setup, right? We do have a team. So I'm not, I'm actually never bothered by the day-to-day operations of Enduo. My job there is purely to design collections and work with Natuka to come up with a creative vision for the brand, a direction for the brand. Of course, we have strategy meetings and, and brand meetings. And, you know, we talk about our wholesale, um, you know, uh, operations and do we want to go direct to consumer? Obviously, you know, what's happening in the industry and the news greatly affects us as a small brand. So we are having those strategy and business centric conversations. But with that being said, so I'm almost never bothered with the day to day, you know, shenanigans that, that go on and, and duo. Plus, I mean, to be fair, the brand is HQ'd in Tbilisi and it, it really has been very um, disappointing for me to not go to Tbilisi um, in the last year or so. I would go every season, you know, we would be in the atelier to like late hours of the night, going through fabric samples, drawing, sketching, talking to our pattern cutters. So when it's hands-on, it's really hands-on, but I love that my role is so dedicated and so specific that I am not bogged down by the day-to-day operations of the brand, which is great, right? So I have a very, like I said, you know, I love structure and I have a very structured role at Enduo. Um, with Desert Mannequin, for example, I am very lucky to have a team that helps me with my partnerships and contracts. And, you know, I, I have an agent that that works very closely with me in terms of um, pitching me to brands or, you know, working with me for, on the influencer side of things. Oh, so, my God. And um, this is this is like the matrix. The agent has an agent. The agent has an agent. It's so um, meta. It's so meta. Right. And it's, it's funny because like stylists have stylists and shrinks have shrinks. And I'm like, it's just it's such a wormhole. But I needed someone to support me on the influencer side and kind of bolster my influencer business because I needed to focus on my writing, right? Like no one's going to write for me. And, you know, equally the management side where if I'm going to be taking on people like Sonam or Sarah, I want to make sure that they're all, they always have access to me if they need me. 
for something small or big. Like I need to be there for them. And that's how I'm going to culminate or cultivate a, um, you know, a strong relationship with my clients when they know that I'm always there to service them or, you know, have a conversation with them. Um, but that's not to say that as an influencer, that I am not, um, you know, facing clients head on. I do. A lot of times brands will approach me directly and want to work with me directly and want to have a conversation with me one-on-one about a particular partnership. And I always, I always, you know, encourage my team, like, let me take on certain things and be in the driver's seat because again, it, it helps. No one can represent you like you represent yourself. You know, like I've always kind of advocated for that. No one, like as amazing as your team might be, as hands-on and proactive and, you know, um, they might know the hustle inside and out. But at the end of the day, I know that when I get into a room or when I get behind a table or if I'm meeting someone or if it's a lunch meeting, I know that I can do myself justice better than anybody else. So consider it, I don't know, call me a control freak or call me alpha or whatever. But yes, at the end of the day, I do want to be responsible for as much desert mannequin related work as I can. Um, I do have help. I don't know if I will be able to afford more help in the future. I think it's also very much dependent on, you know, revenue and cash flow and try, you know, you talk about scalability of a business that all comes with understanding how much you're making, what you can afford, what there's a need for, um, you know, like I, I might never have a need for a certain role in my business, you know? So it's just a matter of understanding, engaging where your business stands, what are the gaps? How can you fill those gaps? You know, what's lucrative, what's not? Um, and then just kind of take it from there, charter our way forward. My last question to you, Anam, is, and I love to wrap up my podcast with this question. What do you believe or what do you feel is your superpower? I think my sensitivity is my superpower. Um, I've often been told um, otherwise, like people who are too sensitive, you know, they will always struggle in life or they, um, you know, it, it just it ends up getting the better or the best of them. But I completely disagree. I think if you are empathetic and I do believe myself to be an empath, there, the universe and I, you know, I'm, I'm not very religious, but I am very spiritual. And I do believe that no one has ever lost in life by being honest or kind or sensitive or emotional. And I feel like if you're always looking out in the best interest of those around you, um, that's not to say that just completely forget who you are and, you know, don't love yourself or value yourself. But I just truly believe, and my husband is exactly the same. It's like, it's almost kind of freaky how, you know, I've actually watched or witnessed the universe taking care of him. It, it sounds very Harry Potter, but I promise you it's a thing. It's, I think our sensitivity and our integrity and loyalty as a couple towards not just each other, but everyone that like kind of is in our life, in our, in our, in our space, um, the universe or God or whatever mystical or higher power you believe in has a way of making sure that you'll be all right and you will succeed and you will grow and you will climb. And, you know, I've had my fair share of disappointments and sadness and trauma and anxieties and fears. But today, as a woman in her 30s, sitting here talking to you, nine months pregnant, cross-legged on her bed, I feel so at peace and I feel really excited for the future. Um, I'm learning to embrace change. I'm learning to just realize that if I set good intention to things and if I do my affirmations and if I manifest positivity and love, there's just no way I won't get it back in return. So that's my superpower. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening to an episode of the Women Power Podcast. And thank you for downloading and streaming our podcast every week. 
If you love what you've heard, tag us on Instagram and follow the Woman Power Podcast and Woman Power Summit account for more information on our next episode. Please leave a rating review wherever you get your podcast. It really helps other women discover the show. That's it from me. See you next week.